little piece of scriptural and church trivia, also from the world of sports, like we heard from uh, the book of Hebrews. In the Greco-Roman wrestling of the ancient world, again, the sports were done unclothed, um, they wrestled in sand pits. And if you're wrestling in a sand pit, we all know what it's like to be on the beach, you know, it's going to be itchy and scratchy. And uh, the wrestlers, especially when you're sweating, you know, that sand's going to stick, and they're going to get terribly abraded, you know, lots and lots of scratches. And in that day, you know, they didn't have antibiotics, so quite often that resulted in some pretty serious infections. But they had a secret. Somehow they figured out that olive oil stopped infections. And point of truth, olive oil does have certain antibacterial properties. Let's call it nature's neosporin. And, you know, if you don't have any little first aid stuff at the house and somebody comes in screaming because they scraped their knee, just put a little olive oil on it. It'll do what you want it to do. But that, so what they would do before they wrestled, they would oil down their bodies. You know, we think in terms of the greased pig contest. But the point in, in oiling themselves down was not to make themselves slippery. If they coated themselves in the olive oil before they wrestled, they didn't get infections. Well, that image seeps into our sacramental practices with the three holy oils. There's oil of the catechumens, oil of the sick, and chrism. The oil of the catechumens we use at the beginning of baptism when we pray that God will set a child or an adult free from original sin. And we put some of that oil of catechumens on them, praying that that oil will prevent them from falling into the infection of sin. So from the days they caught on that olive oil protected you against uh, infection, the ancients began to also use it as a symbol of protecting us from other things. And in our church, we use the oil as a sign of protecting us from sin. Again, right out of the sports world. Our reading from Jeremiah and our gospel uh, are very dark. When we hear that story about division, Jesus, well, in the hands of Luke, Luke has Jesus talking about something that has already happened in order that he can say something about what is happening. Leading up to the Roman-Jewish War, which will end in 69, well, a little after 69, but the temple, uh, Rome, Roman legions conquered Jerusalem, put out a rebellion, and in 69 AD, they destroy the temple. We know that the Gospel of Mark was written very shortly afterwards because he talks about the impending destruction and not the fact that it has been destroyed. So we can date Mark to 69 AD. But, or to, yeah, 69. But leading up to that, the Pharisaical party, which Jesus really had no problem with, even though he's always kind of busting their chops about something, 
Jesus' concern was not what they were trying to do. His concern with how, was with how they were doing it. And what they wanted to do was return Judaism to a pure way of being. And they had, Judaism had split into many different, I would call them, my words, denominations. First century Judaism, even in Jerusalem, is, is no different than Christianity here in Franklin, Tennessee in 2022. You know, we've got Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Church of Christ, Church of God, Church of God, a prophecy, Episcopalians, I mean, just go on and on and on. But we're all Christian. Well, sort of the same thing in first century Judaism. The Pharisees wanted to get all of those various groups back under one roof. And so they began a, a systematic process of asking people to leave the synagogues if they weren't mainstream Jewish. Now, among the many groups who were forced out of the synagogues, those Jews that had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They too, they were seen as a cult. So they were cast out, and it wasn't always pretty. Sometimes it was violent. And so Luke, putting in the words of Jesus, do you think I've come to unite the earth? No, I've come to destroy it, or I've come to divide it. And what Luke is talking about is what happened before the fall of Jerusalem in 69. He's or 70, excuse me. He's talking about all of this mess with the synagogues. Father against mother, family of five, two against three. How this even divided families. Now, the reason he does that is as Christianity began fleeing Jerusalem, it ended up, in Luke's case, his community ends up in and around Antioch. And Luke will tell us that it's in Antioch that the followers of Jesus are called Christians for the first time. But as, he, as they move in, a lot of his readers, a lot of the people he's converting, are Gentile in origin. Now he's got the same problem, but for different reasons. The, the, he's got Greek-speaking Jews. He has Aramaic-speaking Jews. They're at loggerheads. The Aramaic-speaking Jews were from Jerusalem. The Greek-speaking Jews were from the larger area. Then he has both of those sets of Jews against the Gentiles. And so here they all are, here they all are trying to follow Christ, but Luke's, you know, watching the infighting and the division. So he takes what has happened and transfers it into this is what's going to happen as a consequence of Christ. Perfectly legitimate literature way of doing things. Science fiction, real good science fiction, does that all the time. It takes what's happening now, projects it in the future with a logical outcome. So if we look to the future, we can see the consequences of today. But ultimately, the message of Luke is this. We've seen all of the bad stuff. We've seen it all. But we're still here. That did not destroy us. All of that stuff back in Jerusalem didn't destroy us. All this stuff we see right now, we got we to figure it out, got to work our way through it. But we're still here and we're going to be here. And so as bad as this sounds, 
father against son and mother against daughter and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. As we hear all of that, and it sounds so bad, ultimately Luke is giving a very positive message. Yes, following Jesus Christ with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind is going to, we're not going to exactly be mainstream. And, and there might be some division. But Luke is saying, but that's okay. They couldn't destroy us before. They can't destroy us now. And if you don't think there's a lot of division, just go to your Thanksgiving dinner and bring up politics. <laughs> Jeremiah is in trouble for telling the truth. They're trying to kill him. The armies of Babylon are at the gates, ready to conquer Jerusalem, and in fact, they will. And Jeremiah is preaching a message nobody wants to hear. Basically, he's preaching to surrender. Because if they surrender Jerusalem, well, then they get a puppet king, and Babylon will be in charge, but they stay in Jerusalem, and they can still practice their faith. And Jeremiah is wanting to put faith first and foremost. Our faith is more important than our kingdom, is what he's trying to say. Well, nobody wants to hear this surrender thing. You know, nobody's following God's law. Nobody, you know, I mean, it's the, especially the king. Zedekiah is one of the worst of the bunch. And Jeremiah is telling him the truth. He doesn't want to hear it. So he's willing to let people kill him because he doesn't want to hear the truth. He doesn't want to act on the truth as he knows it. And so he lets these people take Jeremiah off. They throw him in a cistern where he will probably starve to death. And then of all of the people, Ebed-Melech the Cushak, the Cushite, excuse me, not even Jewish. He's a pagan, a Cushite. Somehow he was able to convince the king he's listening to the wrong people. And so King Zedekiah told Ebed-Melech to go save Jeremiah. Jeremiah didn't change his preaching. There were multiple attempts on his life. But ultimately, history proves him correct. You know, there are times that we get messages that we don't want to hear. And kind of like Zedekiah, we want to dismiss the message. And sometimes it's not a message of gloom and doom. One of those messages I'm about to open my mouth and speak about, and it's called financial. We don't like here preaching about money. I'm not going to exactly preach directly about money. However, got a complaint email so all we talk about is money 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 well trust me we talk about money here in terms of ourselves and ourselves as a parish once a year that'll come up in a couple weeks when Mike Wren will give you the annual report but last year I asked him to give a six-month update twice a year yeah we have all kinds of special appeals Christmas basket Haiti India but, but that's not preaching about money in the sense we're trying to raise money for ourselves. In the bishop's capital campaign, that's 
It's not directly about us either. Indirectly, it's a whole lot about us. But the Bishop's Capital Campaign, Legacy of Faith, Hope, and Love, it is so essential to the future of our basic, our very basic ministries of the diocese. All that money goes into an endowment. It's not like we're going to raise money to build a building and then all the money's gone. This is money that will be there for forever, forever, to support our ministries. Here we are in an economic strange situation. I don't know if it's upturn, downturn, or inside out. We just know it's weird. <laughs> and it makes it hard to think about giving. But the very reason the bishop is doing this is so that we don't have to be afraid for our ministries as a diocese if we have these endowments for the education of priests, for Catholic education, for Catholic charities, for the creation of new parishes. Right now we have three areas that need a parish. There are only two things that are preventing it, preventing new parishes from being started. One, we don't have enough priests. That's pretty big. But two, those communities which desperately need a parish are in very rural, poor areas and they cannot afford to build their own church. And, and so one of the endowments is to help create new parishes. If you look at the ends of your pews, those of you sitting at the end of the pew, there are pledge cards for this campaign. We ask those of you into the pews to please pass these pledge cards down the row there. What we're asking is that either as an individual or as a family to turn that card in today if you possibly can. There's all kinds of options on there to check. Remember, this is a three-year capital campaign. You know, you don't have to give $5,000 today, but you know, over three years, we can do it. We can do it. You may have reasons that you prefer not to pledge. Some of it may be, sure enough, financial worries and concerns. Some of it is... Maybe the diocese or a priest or a parish has made you angry and, you know, you're reacting to that. No questions asked. But there are all kinds of things to check. And, and one of those is just simply, I will pray for the success of this campaign. Even if you've already made a pledge, we ask you, if you look on the right-hand side of the pledge card, you know, I have already made a pledge. And then it sort of subtly says, I've already pledged, made a pledge, but I'd like to give some more today. <laughs> That's not really an expectation. But it just lets us know, and we can double check, because 25% of everything you pledge will come back to us. So we want to make sure you get credit for your pledges. So if you say you pledged, and then we get the report, and we don't see your name on it, we know that the diocese has credited you to the wrong parish. Now, if you're not really our parishioner, but you pledge on one of our cards, and it's $100,000, we're not going to tell your real pastor. <laughs> we're just going to take a little time. Please look at these. Check something, and in a few moments, the ushers will come up the aisle and collect those cards. If you're considering making a pledge that you want to sit down with your spouse and think through it a little bit more,
take the card with you and indeed do that. You can return it next week, you can put it in the mail, you can drop it by the office. But we want to show, even if you're not giving anything, a return pledge card is marked as participation. 